Uh, what good thing? I, I want to I start again by going back into Matthew. We've been looking at Matthew for uh, quite a few weeks now. But I want to I start in Matthew chapter 20. So if you were in Matthew 21, you're real close. You just got to flip back just a little bit. If you weren't in Matthew chapter 21, well, then you got to pick up your book and get into Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 says this, starting in verse 17. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way. He took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Imagine being in that conversation. These these disciples whom Jesus has taken aside, he's been grooming them, right? He's been grooming them and teaching them. He's been allowing them a little bit of glimpse of who he is, allowing them to be a part of this, as I said, this inner circle, so that they could then go and teach and share and really deliver the message of the gospel into the world after he was gone. And this is, not the, this is not the first time that Jesus predicted his own death, but it is one of the first times that he shared with them how it will happen. That he's going to be delivered over by those who are the chief priests, by the, by the teachers of the law, those who are of his own nation, those who are of, of the nation of Israel, of Jewish descent, and they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Romans. Now the Jewish form of, of death we see with Stephen is, is stoning. But he's going to be handed over to the Romans. And not only is he going to be handed over to the Romans, but they're going to mock him, they're going to flog him, they're going to crucify him. Again, imagine being there and bearing witness to Jesus saying that this is how I'm going to die. This is what's going to happen to me. We see in another passage of Scripture that, that Peter, his response to this is what? His initial response to this is what? May this never happen to you. And Jesus has to, you know, he scolds them a little bit and says, No, you can't say that. You can't talk like that. This is, this is what's going to happen. Get behind me, saying You can't allow any line of thinking like that. Jesus is going to go to a horrific death. And that's what the death on a cross was. It wasn't mercy, it wasn't grace, it wasn't kind, it wasn't loving, it wasn't quick, it wasn't easy, it wasn't painless. It was a form of torture. And it wasn't just a, a randomly done, it was done on purpose to keep those who the Romans had literally under their thumb, those nations who they ruled over, to set as an example, if you do things like this, you will die in this manner. Imagine watching as your countrymen, your, your, your friends, or whoever hung or died in this manner. It was a way to keep people in line. Because you didn't want to do that. You didn't want to have that happen to you. You weren't going to stand up against the Romans if you knew that this was going to be the outcome. Yet Jesus here allows them this glimpse of what's going to happen. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. 
Jesus has led an entire life in perfection leading up to this moment on the cross. And, and there he talked about briefly the idea of what it must have been like to then go and, and have this being leading up to those who uh, in large percentage are going to totally turn away from you or ignore. And not only that, but even, even within his own inner circle, Jesus is teaching and sharing, leading a life where he knows that they're all going to desert him. They're all going to turn away. They're all going to run. They're all going to deny. His life was leading up to this. He chose this path. In perfection, he chose this path. Why? Have you ever, you ever delved into the why of that? And really, really tried to wrap your brain around why Jesus, who is the Son of God, who was with God, who everything that was created was created through him and by him, and all of this power was given to Jesus. Why go to the cross and die for those who in just scores of numbers are not going to love you, are not going to respond to you, are going to deny you and turn away from you. Have you ever thought about how much, when it says that God loves us, that God loves the world, how much that means He loves us? That He loves even those who are going to deny Him so much that he wants to give them the opportunity at eternity with him. Even though he, he knows they're going to deny him, he's giving them an opportunity. Jesus hangs on that cross for our sins. He tells them that he is going to be mocked and flogged and crucified. That he's going to be handed over by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. And all of that is 100% true. All of that unfolded. All of that happened. But he was there because the world is sinful. Because we're sinful. There he talked about uh, the idea of confidence. It's a wonderful thing be able to have confidence in what God has done, to know that his grace washes us as white as snow, that he forgives, that he cleanses us. I hope we recognize that our sins have led to the point where we need him, that we, that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we need God. That there is only one who can erase that which is our sin. Absolutely only one. And if we want to harbor in that, if we want to hold on to our sins, if we want to let them linger, if we want to allow them to fester and grow, whatever those sins are, if we do not turn them over to Him, then there is a time of judgment coming. 
the question is, is how, do, how do we handle this? How do we handle the knowledge of this, of what, of what Jesus has done, of what we have done? How do we deal with that now? You know, in, in Acts, as Peter begins to teach, after Peter has denied, and denied knowing Jesus, denied being a part of his disciples, denied it, Jesus comes back and he restores him. And the times that, that Peter denied, Jesus restored. And Peter goes out and then begins to teach and, and preach with, with the others. And, and comes to a point where those who are listening, those who are hearing the message, are cut to the heart and they want to know what to do. What do we do in response to all of these things that we now know about Jesus? And Peter's response is very simple. And it's not oversimplified. He didn't leave things out. It's not missing parts that we need to add in later. He tells them everything that they need to know. And it just happens to be very simple. God doesn't want to confuse us. He's not going not to trick us with, okay, well, I'll tell them one thing. But they better understand all of this other stuff. What does Peter say to those that understand and know that now what Jesus has done and are cut to the heart? In Acts chapter 2, what does he tell them? Two things. I'll let you think on it. You know the answer already. Repent and be baptized. And they will receive what? For the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized. How, how do we handle this? Well, that's what we do, right? We come to a position of, of faith in Jesus, a belief that Jesus is who He said He is, that He did what He said He was going to do, that He accomplished this victory over our sin. And then we come to a point of obedience in that faith, this, this faith that relies or becomes action. And we repent and are baptized. And we continue to repent of our sins. We continue to understand that the, that sin that we have needs to be repented of. And when it is, it is forgiven. We don't harbor it in our hearts and hold on to it. That's how we handle this. That's, a, that's what we need to be able to do with this. I want to I turn back again in Matthew 1 chapter. Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, <coughs> I see a, a picture of a, of a man, a young man probably, you know, who is well-kept, well-dressed. He's this, this man of, of some wealth. And Jesus then uh, has this interaction with him. And I think we'll see that there is, uh, as the title says, there's something missing. But it says in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16, just then... A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus' response is this. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which one, he inquired. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the man heard this, he went away sad, 
because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The question is, what good thing? Go back into the, what we just read here. The, the man asked Jesus, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What's he asking? Is he asking from a position of humility and service? What, do I have to... I have to do? What, what, what response? You know, we go into Acts chapter 2, and there's a, there's a different question, though it's very similar, right? What must we do in response to this? And this guy's asking, what must I do to get eternal life? There's a, it's a very, very similar question, but from a totally different angle and perspective. Those who were cut to the heart, those who wanted to serve and wanted to know what was required of them and how to how to serve God, how to respond to God and here this man is seemingly asking, what what can I do? You know, I got I want to make sure that I'm going to have eternal life. What can I accomplish? What can I use? What can I do? Is there an action that I can just go out and say, well if I if I donate this or if I do this or if I'm seen here serving in this manner, is this Acceptable enough to earn my way into heaven. And Jesus starts off by correcting him, saying, Why do you ask about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So then they go through the commandments that are to be kept. And to his credit, the man says, Well, I've kept all of those. I've done all of that. And Jesus says then to him, All right then, go sell what you have, give it all away, and come and follow me. Now for someone who has just asked, What must I do to gain eternal life? That seems like, okay, there's the answer. That's, that's all you have to do is just be willing to give of this physical possessions that you have. Come and follow Jesus. It's not the first time that Jesus has called someone to come and follow him, to leave all that he has behind. Peter was a fisherman. Come, follow me. What does Peter do? Drops the nets, leaves his family behind fishing, and goes. Matthew was a tax collector. Come follow me. What does Matthew do? Gets up and goes. So this man, is the, it's not a unique call. Come follow me. Just leave what you have behind. And instead, the guy walks away sad. Why? Because he had a lot. Go back and read it. When the young man, verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He was attached to it. Now, obviously the, the moral of 
part of this story is to allow ourselves to be disconnected in somewhat from this desire for that which is physical. To have the idea of, of physical wealth or riches or power or fame or all of those things to actually infect our relationship with God is a terrible, terrible thing. And, and the, the idea that, that Christ is calling him and saying that you need to be able to give all of who you are to God. Because is Jesus teaching then that it's impossible for those who have great wealth or those who are, who are rich or who have a plenty of money to then understand or know or have a relationship with God? Is that really what he's teaching? That money is inherently evil? Is that what he's teaching? No, that's, that's not what he's saying. Is there, is there a trap or temptation there that comes along with wealth and power? And fame and all these other things that you could equate into the story as well. Yeah, there is. There is a temptation there. And so he says it is difficult. There is a, there is a difficulty there because there is a lure and temptation with comes with having great wealth. But there are, there are many people in our world that have power or fame or wealth and use that for the glory of God. And continue to be generous and kind and loving and do all of those things out of this wealth that they have. But there is a temptation there. The, the greater maybe lesson that he's teaching here for all of us, whether we have great wealth or not, is this heart that we have to have for God. That when God comes to us and says, I want you to be able to leave this behind and follow me, are we able and willing to do that? Now you look at Abram or Abraham and you go back into his story and Jesus or God tells him to go up the mountain and sacrifice his son, the son of promise. It's a very similar request, right? Not the same as wealth, but a son. You have to be willing to sacrifice all to follow me. And his response was what? And it's always, if you've heard me talk about this story before, it always amazes me because it says in scripture that Early the next morning, he got up to go and accomplish what God had called him to do. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't put it off. He didn't beg or plead with God. He didn't, in his heart like Jonah, try to run away. He got up early the next morning to accomplish this terrible task that God had asked him to do. And he tells his son what? When his son questions him, well, where's the sacrifice? God will provide. Is he willing to give all to God in faith? Yeah, you go back into, into Matthew, the story of this, this rich young man, and, and that's what Jesus is asking him to do. Are you willing to sacrifice all of this? Yes, you've, you've followed all of the commandments, but you could follow all of the commandments and still have your wealth ahead of God have all this great wealth that you have in front of God in this place in your heart. Do we have humility before God? Humility is uh, it's not a tricky thing, but it's, it's a tricky thing. If I can contradict myself in the same sentence. Uh, because you turn into uh, the writings of Moses, 
And it says in the writings of Moses that who is the most humble man in the world? Moses. So he gets to, he gets to sit down and, and write that. And it, I'm not saying it's not true. It's just the humor of it that I find intriguing. That, that moment when we, when we think to ourselves, oh man, I'm so humble. My, my humility is greater than, well, I could make a list of all the people I'm more humble than. Then all of a sudden we've kind of lost that humility. It's the same in our relationship with God. And I don't mean to make light of it, but to draw our attention to it. It's the same as our relationship with God. That when we begin to think of ourselves first in our relationship with God, before God, before the obedience to God, before the service of God, when we think of our own goodness as what God is drawn to us then, then we begin to lose perspective on what then God has done for us. That's why I wanted to start this morning by looking at the idea of the death on the cross, of what Jesus has accomplished for our sins. Because if we get to a point where we say to ourselves that my goodness, that my greatness, or that my wisdom, my kindness, my love, my gentleness, is so good, is so profound, that it actually draws God to me, and I have, have salvation because of all that, that God is so close to me, because of all that I can accomplish, then we are losing perspective on what actually God has called us to, what God has actually done for us, what faith actually accomplishes in us, because it is the other way around. Our God, our Heavenly Father, who loves us, who is good and kind and loving and perfect and righteous and holy, and who loves us so profoundly that He gave His one and only Son to die on a cross for us, draws us in with who He is. He calls us out of darkness, out of sin, out of death, and into light and into life, through Jesus. And when we have faith in Him, when we respond to Him, do we not then have this overwhelming desire to be pleasing to God? And then we should, in that desire to be pleasing to God, have the fruits of the Spirit. Because the Spirit dwells in us. And so we will be good and kind and gentle and loving. We will, we will respond in a manner that, that is humble and, and out of servanthood. But it's not us drawing God in. It's us being holy because... How does the end of that go? Because He is holy. Because God is good. Our God is so wonderful. Our God is so amazing. I don't think we, I mean, we understand and we know because we've understood salvation. We know what God has done for us. But I don't think we understand fully how amazing God is. And I think sometimes we get caught up in the perception of God that comes from the world. If you were to ask someone in the world to draw a picture of God, what would they draw? I bet you nine times out of ten, they would draw this 
elderly man with a long white flowing beard and wearing a white robe sitting on a golden throne. Okay? That's their picture of God. But, but does that picture encompass love? Does that picture encompass judgment? Does that picture encompass creation and power and all that, that we know God is? No, it doesn't. They just have a, a picture of God. We need to have humility before God. We cannot put ourselves above God. They, the disciples then ask in response to this, well then, if, if that is true, if, that, if all of that is true, if it's that hard to be saved, who then, who then can be saved? I want to jump back into Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 says this, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went out. He went out again at about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. At about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Who then can be saved? When we talked about this humility before God, the desire and need to have humility before God. God is who saves us and loves us. And he wants us to serve. To serve in a manner that brings others closer to him. And that's always the desire. Is does this bring others in a closer relationship to God? And God is generous. You know, you look at this, this idea of the vineyard. And those who come at this late still receive the full payment. Those who came at it first receive the, the full payment. What a wonder. What a wonder it is for us that we get to sit here now and know that we can build up for ourselves treasures in heaven. As opposed to what? There's a contrast there, right? That we can be building up for ourselves treasures in heaven, or we can be building up for ourselves treasures where? It's not a trick. It's here on earth, right? 
And those treasures that we have here on earth, they will do what? Again, not a trick question. They will spoil. They will fade. We can't take them with us. They will be lost and deserted. They will rust and decay. They will be stolen. They are temporary. But we have a God who is the God of grace. I thank God over and over and over for grace. And it should be more often. Because we do not earn it or deserve it. And yet he has freely given it to us. That we can be saved. That we get to spend an eternity with him. as we think about this turn into, into John but we're going to read John chapter 5 here in, in a second but I want us uh, to be thinking about this and how we go about teaching the gospel how we view our own life but how we, how we go about teaching the gospel how we go about interacting and sharing with others God has done, you know, we, we began looking at the death of Jesus on the cross. The decision that, that that requires on what must be done. The connection that people have to the world. The idea that if we're connected, so connected to the world, that we're missing out on what God has called us to. And we have to be able to share that and, and, and make sure that people understand and know that. And that they understand and know that God is the God of grace. That He, that he will judge the world, but He is the God of grace that loves the world and desires for them to be saved. So in John chapter 5, we're going to read starting in verse 19. If you'd like to turn there. John 5, starting in verse, again, 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will all be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even the Son, even so, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death. 